Provident Healthcare Partners is a healthcare-specific investment bank firm whose services include mergers and acquisitions, equity and debt financing, and strategic advisory. On today's show, we welcome back directors A.J. Shaker and Scott Davis. A.J. is responsible for business development and deal execution across a range of service industries. During his tenure, he has advised dozens of companies that are considering strategic alternatives, including strategic mergers and private equity recapitalizations. Scott leads transactions across a wide range of healthcare services sectors, focusing on business development, marketing, negotiation of deal terms, and due diligence efforts. This is a follow-up to our first interview from back in January, where we covered the advantages of selling, even early or mid-career, versus trying to scale up a practice using your own capital. On today's interview, we talk about the standard deal structures and some of the variations they've seen. They also clear up a number of misconceptions that I had. Ultimately, these private equity firms are playing the long game, and physicians talk to each other. So if we feel like we've been taking advantage of, their model doesn't work. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Scott Davis and AJ Shaker, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Brad. Good to speak with you again. So the last time we spoke, interest rates were pretty low. And this episode is going to come out in a couple of weeks from when we're recording. But right now, there's the Russian war with the Ukraine. Interest rates were coming up. You know, we don't know what that's going to do to the economy, right? So we don't know where that's going to be. But one of the things that you guys talked about was that a lot of these private equity firms are sitting on a lot of dry powder. And what that means is they have money and they're looking for places to put it. So what happens if interest rates come up? Should we expect to see a decrease in the rate of these deals? Or because healthcare is so reliable, is it going to be minimally affected? Yeah, I would say in terms of interest rates for these private debt funds that are funding a portion of these private equity deals, those are still holding pretty steady in terms of the low rates we'd seen for the prior up to the last decade, really. So part of what we're doing at Provident in terms of staying in front of the uh, investor community is in front of the lenders as well. And the feedback we're getting, and this is real time, even you know the last few days, is that there's a bullish outlook on those rates that they will remain moderately low. That's the initial point. We wouldn't expect the volatility of the public markets to impact the private debt rates anytime soon. Now, of course, no one really knows what the future will hold, but that is the outlook of the lenders themselves. So that's probably worth noting right off the top. You mentioned record levels of dry powder. That's totally accurate. That has been the case in terms of record setting equity raises by private equity groups month after month, quarter after quarter, or year after year for an extended period of time. So it is at a record level right now. We would actually view any impact of rates in terms of the inability to get the same level of debt they were able to get in the past, leveraging that dry powder to their advantage. So if there is a shortfall in terms of access to debt, they actually have that record level of equity to draw upon to really fill that gap. So between the combination of the expectation for rates to remain low and that extra amount of dry powder that's sitting on the sidelines that has to be deployed at some form or fashion at some point, the impact on the model is expected to be minimal to none based on what we know of the environment today. And one point to add to that is investors underwrite the 
expected returns that they see in these investments on that initial valuation that they're paying. So the idea is if they foresee kind of a giant increase in rates that would hinder their ability to grow in the future, that would be representative of the valuation multiples they're paying for these platforms that close, as well as the bolt-on acquisitions that they're doing to those platforms over a period of time. And those valuations from what we've seen haven't necessarily dipped by any means. So that also seems to indicate that there's a sentiment that interest rates would be under control enough in the near term, according to the investors, that they're still willing to hold true to the valuation multiples they're willing to pay for kind of premium companies in the market. Is there anything that you could foresee changing this where the situation is, okay, we're considering selling, but it's not a great time for us. Maybe we'll do it in the future, but these are the things to look out for in terms of, well, you got to strike while the iron is hot and it's definitely hot right now. So either it's now or never. Yeah, it's a great question. And one that we're having almost seemingly on a daily basis. You know, obviously there's no crystal ball, but there's, you know, a number of factors that lead us to believe that now is a great time to consider something if it is in the best interest of the shareholder group. And to your point, you know, there's uncertainty around where rates go. If those increase significantly in the future. That's obviously more cash that the private equity firms and the platforms have to use to pay down interest rather than investing into growth. So that hampers their ability to stretch on the multiple side of things. Right now, like we've been saying, it seems to be not as much of a concern for the investors to hold those valuations steady. I think that the next point, and this becomes different healthcare company to healthcare company, physician practice to physician practice, especially based on specialty, is kind of the outlook on where reimbursement goes in their respective specialties going forward. And that's really where we see multiples that change significantly on a year in and year out basis. We've seen it happen, for instance, in areas of physician practice management that have been consolidating for almost 10 plus years at this point. For instance, in the pain management space, there were reimbursement cuts to lab, especially toxicology services that impacted the valuations that were paid in that space. The opioid crisis, as an example, making investors wary of getting into investments into interventional pain management practices. That's shifted to some degree, especially as you see groups that are taking more holistic approaches to pain uh, management, as an example, that are being favored as the uh, kind of new leaders of that healthcare vertical going forward. You know, it's impossible to predict which, you know, specialties will be in favor or not from CMS on a year in and year out basis. So that's another item that we encourage groups to think about is where's healthcare heading with respect to their specialty, especially from a reimbursement standpoint. And just lastly, there's also kind of competitive factors at play within their given market. If the business that's considering a transaction right now is able to grow without necessarily having to compete with uh, a number of large players in their given market, there may not be private equity backed organizations in their backyard just yet. You know, they could see some momentum as being kind of a first mover strategically in their market. Whereas groups that are a little bit boxed out, don't necessarily have a lot of runway to grow on their own means, could suffer as a result from a valuation standpoint. So those are all things that we encourage our clients to keep in mind when they think about the right timing to pursue something. It's not just some of those macro kind of specific factors like interest rates. It's also what's happening in their specialty, what's happening in healthcare broadly, as well as those local competitive dynamics.
And also keep in mind the fact that the structure of these deals for physician practices in particular will require some level of rollover equity. So if to your point, Brad, you can seize upon the record levels of valuations today and you know a majority recapitalization of your business while still retaining a meaningful amount, you've taken some risk off the table on the go forward if, God forbid, there's cuts to reimbursement or other macro events like AJ alluded to that will hinder the business, but you've still retained a meaningful amount to seize upon whatever future upside there may be. So it's a nice middle ground and it allows you to achieve the record levels of valuation that are currently you know, at the ready. Let's talk about the structure of these deals. And the saying that I've heard in your industry is, if you've seen one deal, you've seen one deal. But that being said, from what I've heard, there is a generally common deal structure. So can we just go through what the common structure is? And then we'll go through some common variations and some of the more unusual variations. Sure. So I started to get into that topic just a moment ago, but to expand upon that, what we typically see, the average transaction will be what we refer to as a majority recapitalization. So that would mean 51% or more of the equity in the business is sold to the private equity investor with the physician shareholders retaining the latter amount. We typically see, you know, anywhere from call it 20% up to about 40% of retained equity ownership by those physicians. Different situations can dictate that amount moving upward or downward. In a broad physician shareholder group, you naturally could assume that the requirement may be a little bit higher, given the fact that each individual owner will retain relatively modest amount when compared to, say, a one to two or three physician owner group being required to roll over, say, 25 or 30 percent. There's just a lot more retained equity in the hands of those rollover shareholders. So that's the typical scenario from a rollover perspective. The opportunity for that rollover can come in different forms and fashions, and maybe we get into this a little bit on the variations of models, but we typically like to see that rollover equity held at what we refer to as Topco, which is the parent level entity that the private equity investors are invested in as well. And we like to have that held in what we refer to as a peri pursue position, meaning it's the same exact treatment that those private equity investors have at the time of liquidation. Now, there are scenarios where there's preferential treatment for the investor group. But again, ideally, we like to see it on a peri pursue basis. So I'd say from a rollover and a cash perspective, that's what we typically see. And then, Brad, I think to your question about what are the variations, one variation we see, and this gets into Scott's point, is if there's a preference on behalf of the investors versus the physician shareholders, that could mean, let's say, a baked-in percentage return on a year-in, year-out basis for those investors for the time they've held the investment. That has to be paid out before the physician shareholders can participate in the deal. In other instances, it could be based on kind of a specified hurdle rate, such as a kind of multiple on invested capital, as an example. But there's a number of different kind of variations there. I think, as Scott mentioned, the approach that we like to, to see in all of our transactions representing physician side of the table is ensuring that there's common equity alignment between the private equity firms and the physician shareholders. What we've seen elsewhere in the structure as well is instead of being equity owners in the Topco entity, sometimes we'll see investors have a preference for the physician's holding their rollover equity in a local level. It might be just in their own practice on a go-forward basis. And where that could be advantageous for the physicians is that it typically entitles them to ongoing distributions within their practice. 
So the better that their practice does, and theoretically they have the most control over it because they're the ones who are seeing patients there, they're overseeing the clinical protocols, they know the managers, they know the people who work there, the more economic benefit that they can get. Whereas some of our other clients, they like the opportunity to roll into a Topco that might have equity interest representing practices from a few different geographies because it mitigates some regional pressures that may exist in one particular geography. So it's a way of diversifying their equity interest across a much broader portfolio. And then even on top of that, we see groups that employ kind of a hybrid approach where some of your equity is held at the local level to ensure that practice level interest and alignment with the PE investors while also participating in the top co such that the better the overall company does, the, the better the individual shareholders do as well. So there's variations on where that equity sits, what preference that equity has with respect to the private equity investors, the management team, new shareholders coming into the business. Um, and then lastly, you know, while we've talked about majority deals in terms of situations where the physicians sell anywhere from 60 to 80% of the equity in the business, we also see from time to time minority deal structures where the physicians own the majority of the business on an ongoing basis and the private equity firms are actually in a minority position, as well as situations where there could be, let's say, a specified need for growth equity that kind of has a hybrid debt and equity kind of apparatus to it. But I would say, Scott, you know, probably... 80 plus, 90 plus percent of the physician deals we see described to the typical majority recapitalization structure, uh, unless you think otherwise. No, I'd agree with that. And I would say on the minority side, what a lot of groups go out looking for that with the idea that they want to retain that much more ownership position on a go forward basis. But what they come to find out is, you know, the, the minority rights of the investor group oftentimes, you know, really mirror the rights of them when they're in a majority position too, meaning the selling shareholders are giving up a lot of control over their business, at least as it relates to financial decisions. Certainly clinical autonomy will remain, but they get to the calculus of, you know, why would I sell 20% of my business and give up what feels like a majority control when I could sell 80% and really take my chips off the table and feel like I'm in a similar position on a post-close basis. So that is some of the calculus, but it's not unheard of. I've heard of fertility specialists that often sell a minority share. I'm not sure why. Maybe it has something to do with the expensive equipment that they need in order to run their specialty. And then in order to scale, it really takes a lot more capital than the rest of us do. But yeah, I didn't realize that was baked into it, that you do lose or have the potential to lose that financial control. In some regards, you know, it's not across the board. There's things, it's kind of similar to the dynamics of taking on a lender. In that instance, there are going to be certain covenants in place, whether it be, you know, cash reserves or things of that nature. It's a similar type of dynamic where there'll just be some barriers on your decision making that weren't there before. And again, if you want to take those on, does it make more sense to do really liquidating on the front end or not? So if you sell, but maintain your, so you're selling a majority, right? But you're one of those physicians that maintain your equity at the local level. What happens with that second bite at the apple, right? Where the larger entity is sold, what happens to your shares? How do they determine how much those, who's buying those shares from you? 
That's a great question and addressed a number of different ways based on the agreement in place. In some cases, there are provisions where the equity at the local level can hold value at that exit because the parent company can exercise a call right on that equity at that time of the sale where they're able to purchase it for some either specified multiple ahead of time or at the multiple that the entire business goes for. So that would be one pathway to liquidity. In other instances, we've seen investors seek to treat that equity, especially if the primary kind of economic benefit to the shareholders are fund ongoing distributions. So almost treat that similar to how private practice buy-in and buy-out works with new shareholders. So let's say there's a, a shareholder that owns equity in the local structure. They may choose to sell their interest at the time of their retirement or exit from the practice to a newer position with a similar kind of predetermined buyout that would then allow that new position to keep that equity interest going forward. So there's a number of different ways we've seen that kind of share value to hold you know, economic benefit at the second bite. Whether that, that seems risky. A- that seems risky, right? Because then you need... Someone needs to be there to buy your shares. If your own shares in the larger entity, and then there's this second bite, then you get a predetermined percentage. But if you're holding them at the local level, you're going to need to find someone very specific to buy these very specific shares at a price that, how do you even? So there are bylaws put in place that more often than not, the private equity investor stands as the option of last resort. So there's always the ability for that selling shareholder to exit that local equity. They first want to offer it up to fellow physicians, as do the private equity investors, because they want you know the requisite amount of ownership to remain in that physician pool. But if there's not someone to step up willing or able to do that, private equity group will basically backstop that sale. And the, you know, the function for how it happens, there'll be an agreed upon kind of formula, which comes to some form of what's referred to as a fair market value for that equity. So every situation will be slightly different, but the bylaws around how you monetize it and its value would be determined on a pre-closed basis. Okay. And I just want to fill in some of the blanks of the way that, that the majority of deals are structured. So you sell a majority of your stake, you keep by a minority, whether you're keeping it at the local level or as a percentage of the larger entity. So now you own a small percentage of your practice. You're still making money in a way that you've determined in your contract, however you and the larger entity decide to do that. But there's also this management fee that there's going to be. So they may improve the way your practice is run through economies of scale, through better insurance insurance coverage, but reimbursement. There's then going to be inevitably a management fee that cuts into that. Yeah, and the management fee is an interesting topic because it's expressed in a number of different ways across deals and physician practice management. In some transactions, you'll see management fee referring to essentially certain back office costs that are offloaded from the practice entity onto the parent company that theoretically has centralized resources to do everything that you just mentioned, payer contracting, HR, finance, everything that would be needed from a back office perspective. In other cases, we've also seen that management fee essentially represent the EBITDA that is being acquired in the business on a go-forward basis. And so that management fee is essentially, you know, the way that those uh, private equity, you know, owned companies 
are able to get around, for instance, corporate practice of medicine laws in order to essentially sweep the profit that the deal is based on from that local level to the, the parent company. But what we've seen in a number of different physician verticals, we've seen it a lot in OBGYN as an example. We've also begun seeing it in urology and GI and, and ENT and a couple others, is that the way that management fee is expressed could be different based on the, the acquiring party. In some instances, that management fee is tied to a percentage of revenue. So long as the, the revenue of the practice increases, you know, there's obviously more profitability through that management fee that is inuring to the, the Topco entity, which the physicians in many cases are, are equity holders in. But the leftover amount that's net of the management fee could serve as an essentially way to recover or repair some of the income that the physicians have sold down to fund the deal to begin with. And so that's one way that we've seen management fees created is just tying it to a percentage of revenue. Other cases, we've seen it expressed as a flat kind of dollar amount going forward where there's more upside going to the physicians, but more downside risk if they can't meet that specified dollar amount management fee going forward. But at the end of the day, the goal for that management fee is to, one, cover the, the cost from a back office infrastructure standpoint, but second, serve as that vehicle to essentially sweep that profitability from the deal from the practice level up to the parent company. Because physician practices don't make, because either you're going to invest money back into your practice or you're going to keep it. So at the end of the day, there's nothing left. And so in order for these companies to say like, we generate this amount of revenue, there actually needs to be revenue that doesn't go into physicians' pockets or back into the business. There needs to be somewhere else that the money goes. And so that's the, ends up being the management fee. Although you, you mentioned it could be a percentage of in revenue, I think in New York state, which is where I am, it can't be. It's, they have to find another way to calculate the formula because it cannot be a percentage of revenue. And I think because I'm not sure if that has anything to do with not, not Stark laws, but they just don't want the physicians to be incentivized in that way to, to be put in a position where they're forced to produce more. Making clinical decisions based on economic ones. Economic well means. put. Right. Yeah. Much better put than I did. Let's say you've sold, and we talked in the previous episode about how to choose the right partner, choosing a spouse, choosing a dance partner, choosing the specialty, right? There's there's a lot to these decisions. We also just talked about the second bite at the apple. So you choose the right PE partner. Now you're a minority shareholder, right? You don't get to decide who gets to own your practice next. So is there any way that physicians can exert control over future liquidity events as the minority shareholder if they deem it to be particularly unfavorable? So the investment period with your partner will, God willing, result in a lot more physicians and ideally a lot more physician shareholders to enter the group. So on a singular basis, a person's ability to dictate things will be diluted by some extent. That's just a natural course of the growth. That's true. But to your question on like the physician group as a whole being able to dictate the outcome, they don't own, they don't retain the right at the end of the day to make the decision. You are minority shareholders at that point. But what you do have in your back pocket is the fact that you, the physicians, are the revenue of the business. If you don't show up for work, 
there is no revenue and there is no business. And to the extent that a private equity partner is going to try to bring on a new investor that for whatever reason, the physician shareholder group isn't comfortable with and has really upset the balance with that group, but they can always revolt to some extent. And the incoming investor group is never gonna put themselves into that situation because again, the people are the assets and on a post-closed basis, if they're not happy, they don't have a, a solid business on their hands. On an individual basis, it's not the ability to exert too much control, but in the collect, there is that ability just through your position and importance to the business. Candidly, we don't see that happen a whole lot. If you're involved in one of these transactions, the outcome you're looking for is the highest return possible, while still, of course, we're retaining clinical excellency that's across the board, but you're looking for the best outcome possible and as are the private equity investors. So typically those two things align, unless there was some one-off unique situation where that incoming partner party just simply was the opposite of what the physician group is looking for. We really don't see that come to fruition, but in the collective, they do retain some capabilities as a result of their revenue generation. My concern, I'm a big skeptic about all of this. Currently my practice is physician run. We have a C-suite that is non-physicians who really run the practice, but ultimately they do answer to an elected physician board. And so those are practicing physicians. And so they want to be as happy as possible. So my concern is it's eventually going to be run by someone who's not looking for me to be as happy as possible, but just maybe not unhappy enough to leave, which might be a very big difference, right? There's a big difference between as satisfied as possible and just not angry enough to leave. Not have an answer for that. That wasn't really a question. Okay, no, it's a fair point. I still think that the select few shareholder physicians will have a uniquely stronger role, even in operational capacities. There'll be certainly a cl clinical uh, governance board, but there's usually some semblance of involvement from that physician group in the management, you know, board representation, things of that nature. So there's a voice at the table guiding things along throughout that hold period. But in, to some extent, like you said off the top, you are trying to pick the best partner when that first process is run. And God willing, you've done so. And they've got your best interests at heart alongside trying to make sure everyone at the table makes as much money as possible. I think one of the aspects of these position deals that PE groups lean upon heavily is to the point about culture and, and how the physicians perceive that partnership going forward. It's really in the PE firm's best interest if their physician shareholders can be the champion of that business to either groups that they're looking to acquire or new physicians that they're looking to recruit into the business. Because I, I think the, the groups that have been very successful in physician practice roll-ups and, and exits are the ones who understand that that physician to physician conversation goes a lot longer of a ways in terms of growth than it is from, let's say, a professional CEO to that physician or to a private equity firm to that physician. So the way that we see it is, yes, groups could do the deal that makes the physicians happy enough not to leave, but not necessarily enthusiastic. But at the end of the day, if they're looking across the street and their competitor PE firm that's aligned with another practice is viewed as the top employer. ENT or oral surgery, wherever the case may be, when recruiting is very difficult and there's only a select number of physicians out there in the market, they're putting themselves at a disadvantage if they're not copying that kind of physician-centric approach overall. So again, a little bit of a, a softer topic. It's important to evaluate group by group from a personality fit perspective, like we were talking about earlier. 
but something that we've seen to be important, especially in these kind of recent transaction waves in the physician specialties is how much of a champion those physician partners can be for that platform going forward, which again, speaks to their level of importance and involvement in some of those key decision-making initiatives. Makes sense. I say that all the time on the podcast, human beings are tribal. And so in this situation, the other physicians are our tribe. And so that's who we're going to trust over some someone giving a sales pitch or, or a CEO, a suit, although a lot of us wear suits to work. So then how are physician interests typically represented in PE firms? Yeah, physician interests can be represented in a couple different ways. First, we tend to see a creation of a essentially a, a physicianing governing body or a clinical council of, of some way, shape, or form, where especially as you come up with large, essentially, essentially national businesses that have disparate physicians across a number of different geographies, typically there's a selection of individuals from those practices that are elected to a clinical governance board that works in concert with the executive board and the private equity partners on key kind of physician-related or clinical-related decision-making. It's also a way to create some collegiality among especially what could be a thousand-plus network of physicians across the country. Sometimes it can take academic tilts, other times business, other times practice management. That tends to be where we see a lot of groups gravitate towards these days with respect to governance and making sure that Physicians have uh, requisite representation from that standpoint. We're also seeing, and this can be difficult based on the specialty, but a lot of sponsors being very interested in groups that have physician representation on the C-level suite, especially from a CEO perspective or a chief business development officer, chief medical officer, complementing that with the, the requisite kind of professional managers on the other side. Just because, again, we were talking about earlier, the level of importance of that physician-to-physician conversation. What that tends to be is, again, something that is signed off on from the PE sponsor. So it's different than maybe some private practices where there's an election every two years and the hat of president or CEO is passed around. They want more continuity just with the, the individual that they're backing in this situation. But certainly what we see in a number of these transactions is at least the creation of that physician uh, governance body, that clinical governance board, if not in several circumstances, having physician executives as part of the team going forward as well. So one of the things that we often see in these deals, like a, a lot of practices, they're, they're on a collections model, right? You, it's a euphemism we use, you eat what you kill, you keep what you get, something along those lines, right? So it's a certain percentage of collections and everyone's got a different model for that. But often when you're an employed physician, there's an RVU model. Are you guys able to speak to why a practice or a, a private equity firm would choose to change from some collections model to an RVU model? I would say the average of what we see is actually no real changes to the model other than the aggregate amount you're taking home at the end of the day. So what we refer to as a compensation normalization. So a reduction in comp that brings you down to what is industry norm, if not slightly more aggressive for your subspecialty, your level of seniority, your geography, so on and so forth, right? That's how you create the cash flow or adjusted EBITDA that you then market to the industry, the investor community. So that's really where we see the changes. 
it's rather uncommon actually for us to see an RVU model in general, where we may see it is with a physician practice that services the hospital and health systems directly, as opposed to more typical you know, private practice being on the collection model you alluded to, with a variation of models within that, whether it be a share of uh, salary with bogeys built in for the, uh, the productivity thresholds or just straight collections, uh, productivity-based collections, as you alluded to, Brad. So we'll see some variations there, but for the most part, we actually don't really see a change in, in the formula itself. It's just an overall reduction. The thing that actually a lot of the investor groups like to do is to simply offer to the physician group to continue to make that decision on their own on a post-close basis. So if you look at the shareholder comp in an aggregate and simply reduce it, you're doing it on an individual basis, but it creates a pool of a reduced comp. The remaining pool is up to that physician group to decide how it's distributed. Now, behind the scenes, you're likely to just use the same thing you've used for years prior because you know that satisfies everyone. So the only real difference is the amount you're taking home at the end of the day, but you offset that, of course, with the cash proceeds and retained equity ownership. So really don't see too many uh, situations where it changes. It's just the magnitude. And what would happen if you were bought by a PE firm with the intention of right consolidating and selling you pick the wrong dance partner. Now they're unable to consolidate more practices. There's no second bite. What happens there? What happens if there's no subsequent sale? So most investors are going to need an exit in some way, shape or form. Their fund bylaws require it. Typically there's a 10 year fund cycle where they have to deploy the capital in that 10-year period and also return that capital back to their investors. There's certain circumstances where, for instance, family offices or evergreen funds, they could simply hold an investment forever if they wanted to, but that's fewer and far between in, in the deals we see in the position world. Not that they don't happen, it's just fewer in number. And so because there is that need for an investor to eventually exit, there's a couple of different situations. One is they'll always look to maximize the return by, let's say, selling to a strategic player or a private equity firm that could you know, offer that return to the PE sponsor as well as the shareholders. But in other instances, we've actually seen the physicians themselves just buy back the, the equity from the private equity firm itself. In some situations that at a discount to even what the, the PE firm put in to begin with, for the physicians, they're getting some a deal on buying back their company after they took proceeds in that situation. But more often than not, PE firm will figure out a way to exit. And it's just a matter of who it's to, whether it's to another investor, if it's a special situation lender, or even the, the physicians themselves, essentially buying the business back from the, the sponsor at the end of the day. Is there any way that a private equity firm might be able to hide revenue from physicians? Meaning like, and this might be an outdated question, right? This might have be, might be from when this was done by 20 years ago, but like subleasing space or equipment back to the physician. So as a way to hide revenue, so it doesn't look like the practice is as successful, but they're just finding other ways to like nickel and dime the practice and make more money from them. Yeah, I mean, I suppose anything's possible, but um, we really don't see that in practice ever. I can't think of a scenario where we've uncovered that happening. And I can tell you the typical model that we see just about in every instance is for 
the physicians and the private equity investors to share in the upside on a pro rata basis. Somewhat untypical to actually see any distributions during the hold period, save for the situations where there's that local equity that may create that distribution capacity. But if it's equity purely at the top co level, it's really all the cash flow of the business is just reinvested. Now, the private equity investors themselves aren't going to really see any value until they eventually exit, whether that's three, five, seven years down the road. So the only people that have really seen a positive outcome so far would be the physicians themselves through the cash they took at close. From that point forward, it's a typical question, where is all this cash going? Who's taking it out? The answer is it's staying in the business and no one's taking it out. They utilize that annual cash flow that's generated, the adjusted EBITDA that hopefully is growing over time to reinvest, to develop a management team, develop infrastructure through IT, marketing, sales, distribution, whatever it calls for, that really uh, stays in the business. And then in the rare instance, they do uh, what's called a dividend recap, which is taking out debt to facilitate that distribution. Again, it would be shared on a pro rata basis for all equity holders. Because as you mentioned, and I think AJ said earlier, this is, these are institutional investors. And the way that they invest is they give a large sum of money and they don't expect returns until that liquidity event that is three, five, seven, or even 10 years down the road. That's exactly right. This has been extremely enlightening for me. Is there anything else that you guys would like to share with our physician audience? No, I think hopefully our guidance today was helpful and you get a good feel for what the average model is, some of the things to be mindful of, and then how things could change for you on a post-close basis. But as we alluded to off the top, it is a very interesting time with valuations at all-time highs and seemingly interest from the investor community in every nook and cranny of physician practices and really everywhere else in healthcare services. Very interesting time. And I think there's uh, good days ahead is our forecast for 22 and hopefully beyond. Yeah, and I think we always suggest to physicians that are thinking about something like this to, you know, just do all their due diligence in the background, make sure that they're well-equipped with information from colleagues that have gone through transactions like these, hopefully listening to your podcast, Brad, and, and ours to get well-acquainted with the topics they should be concerned about as they go into this. We always preach doing your, your homework as much as possible ahead of this and having good people advise you around this sort of process, because like we talked about last time, it is a marriage. You want to make sure that you go into things with eyes wide open. Again, we expect this to continue into the near term across so many more physician specialties than what we've seen uh, in the past at a volume that should continue at a, a similar, if not increasing clip. So that kind of messaging probably reverberates more around all physicians these days than it even did a couple of years back. Great. AJ Shaker, Scott Davis, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.